smells Jesus-y. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. We are the aroma of Christ. God has spoken. Welcome to Smells Jesus-y, a podcast from Three Crosses Church. Today we're continuing our series, Following and Sharing the Way of Jesus. Today, Matt Waldron will be speaking to us from Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 14. Jesus is the Lord of right and wrong. Here's Matt. Well, Jesus healed a man, probably enabling him to get a job. And the local religious leader takes offense. He says that Jesus has breached a legal technicality. It's so wrong. Uh, That's kind of the middle of that Bible reading we just had. As an example of the fact that Jesus performed miracles to inspire people to be more devoted to God, but the religious leaders of his day were offended that he was doing that, well, in unauthorized ways. It's political correctness gone mad. It's like banning Santa Clauses from saying ho, 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 because people who are familiar with American slang might find it amusing and be too cheerful at Christmas time. It's like refusing to advertise for hard workers because you mustn't offend lazy people. It's like when an Asian person tells a joke about Asian people and a white person gets offended on behalf of climate change. It doesn't actually make, it sort of sounds sort of right, except it doesn't actually make sense. Uh, More seriously, I'm not aiming to nail down any big political issues today, but, oh my goodness, right now, In the Western world, we need this Bible passage. The former president of the United States of America, Barack Obama, recently said, One of the things I do worry about sometimes among progressives in the United States is a certain kind of rigidity where we say, "Uh, I'm sorry, this is how it's going to be. And then we start creating a circular firing squad where you start shooting at your allies. This is figurative shooting, just in case you're not sure. Uh, Shooting at your allies because one of them has strayed from purity on the issues. And when that happens, typically the overall effort and movement weakens. So what he's saying is we're arguing over the little details instead of getting on with the big priorities. Stephen Fry, the comedian, actor and writer, says, it's time for the toxic binary zero-sum madness to stop. I'm not sure exactly what that means, other than the fact that I'm a Stephen, fan, a Stephen Fry fanboy, so I felt compelled to put it in. But anyway, uh, so the, the Bible passage we're looking at today is warning us about something that today we really need to hear this warning. Here's the warning. We cannot understand right and wrong without understanding others. Or to put it another way, morality without empathy is affrontery. I'm sorry for that, another... Stephen Fry fanboy moment. Anyway, we cannot understand right and wrong without understanding others. So let's dive into Matthew 12. We're going to concentrate on verses 1 to 8, but also notice how it relates to verses 9 to 21. So there's this controversy with Jesus about how to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Uh, In a nutshell, it says, take a day off work every Saturday and make sure other people get to do that as well. So listen to the controversy from verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some ears of corn and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, 
Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So this is probably a bit foreign to us, but some of the followers of Jesus were, you know, picking grain, corn's the best guess, in a field as they walked along. That was perfectly legal and socially acceptable in terms of Jewish hospitality, but they were doing it on the Sabbath, the day that God had commanded not to work. And so some Pharisees were critical. The Pharisees were kind of the enthusiastic, devoted, mainstream Jews. So they said, you know, picking this uh, grain, peeling off the outer husk, that is work. It's supposed to be the day off today. You're doing work on this. You're breaking the Sabbath. And so Jesus answers from verse 3. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? So his basic argument is, yes, those are the rules, but you have to interpret the rules correctly. There are exceptions. There are nuances that you're familiar with. So verse 6, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So there were two reasons these Pharisees misinterpreted the Sabbath. They misinterpreted God's law and they misinterpreted Jesus. So we'll look at each of those in turn. Firstly, they misinterpreted the law. Look at verse 7. Jesus quotes the Jewish scriptures, what Christians have in the Bible as the Old Testament. God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is from a story where people are being rebuked for going through the motions of Jewish religion, but missing the whole point of being kind to other people. God didn't tell them to stop obeying his religious laws about things like the temple sacrifices, but he made it clear that the whole point of those things was to teach them to trust him so they would be kind to each other. This is essentially the same problem Jesus points out uh, in the next paragraph. Let me read from verses 11 to 14, this next little bit of the story. He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So Jesus points out that they can interpret the Sabbath in a way that facilitates being kind to sheep, which is correct, but people are even more important than sheep. So interpreting the Sabbath should be done in a way that facilitates doing good to people. Or, the way Jesus says it, therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I think there's a common pitfall in this passage. We want Jesus to give us detailed instructions on what exactly we should do and not do with the Sabbath law. And so we tried to read that detail into statements like, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. 
Uh, and so sometimes people will say, well, the man had a shriveled hand. It was kind of a medical emergency. So we infer Jesus is saying it's okay to work on the Sabbath for emergencies. Well, it is true that it's okay to work on the Sabbath for emergencies. It's just not Jesus' point. The Pharisees had very detailed instructions about how to interpret the Sabbath in every specific situation. And Jesus does not say, we need to tweak your detailed rules. He's saying they've missed the whole point, that by focusing too much on the details of following the rules, they've missed the whole point of God's law, which is to do good. They've missed the true emphasis that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gives the example of Pharisees tithing their herbs but neglecting justice. There was a terrible case uh, just recently where uh, two first-year uni students got terribly drunk, had sex, couldn't remember in the morning, but realised and regretted it. The young woman could not remember giving her consent, so, quite understandably, she felt violated. The young man could not remember either, but there was written electronic evidence and multiple witnesses which showed they had both been conscious and consenting. Right, it's an awful situation. Quite rightly, it was reported to the university and the police. It's a horrible situation, hard to deal with. When people were first confronted with it, I think they knew it was a horrible situation hard to deal with. I don't think anybody thought, what we need to do here is have a long public battle in the courts. That's what these young people need. That's not what anyone thought, but that's what they did. That's what happened. Uh, the last information I could find online was last year when it had been going on for five years and it wasn't about to wrap up. Look, legal battles in court can be really necessary. But when that is happening, there is a bigger issue than the problem between those two young people. There's a bigger problem in society and the legal system. And uh, working over those two young people for it is just missing the whole point, isn't it? The point of right and wrong is to do good, to be kind, to look after people. Uh, we cannot do good to other people if we don't understand them. Notice in this Bible passage that the Pharisees would not have objected to Jesus' argument in theory, hypothetically. You need to make sure you interpret God's law carefully. Of course they would have agreed with that. That was what they were all about. They had hundreds of years of built-up literature of the tradition of how to interpret it. Of course they thought you had to do it carefully. Jesus doesn't say, ah, oh, you don't know this Bible verse, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. He says, you act as if you, haven't, as if you don't understand it, you don't really get it. If you had understood, you would not have accused the innocent. Or in the next story with uh, Jesus, they are looking for something to accuse him of. Right? They're not using God's law. They're not using right and wrong to do good. They're not using God's law, right and wrong, to be kind. They're using it 
to judge people unnecessarily. They're looking at using it to try and find a way to beat a political opponent. I think in our uh, day and age, the popular solution to this, we, you know, we would never say, I don't know, right and wrong isn't about looking after people. We would never say that in theory. But in practice, what happens too often is that understanding other people is hard. And so we just say, we should just give people what they want. Everyone's an individual. Look, everyone is an individual. But that doesn't change the fact that most of the time we don't know what's best for us. It doesn't change the fact <clears throat> that uh, we change our minds. It doesn't change the fact that individually getting what we want doesn't work if we're not doing it together in some sense. Because part of what we want is each other and community. And in a group situation like a family or a workplace or a nation, we need some kind of connection and consistency. Uh, Andrew Pierce is a journalist. I don't know if he's changed his views, but a few years ago, he wrote that equality mania promotes intolerance. Why? <clears throat> well, Andrew is an out, proud, gay man, and he gets labelled as a homophobe, authoritarian, or having a touch of Stockholm syndrome because he's opposed to the legal recognition of same-sex marriage. Right? If, if you're a Christian who's, in favor, who's opposed to the legal recognition of same-sex marriage and you've got flack for that, spare a thought for the gay people who agree with you. you. You think Christians get a hard time for opposing the legal recognition of same-sex marriage. Think about what it's like for gay people. I mean, think about the conversations you have and imagine you're a gay person. I don't think you understand what it's like for gay people. Imagine being told that as a gay person. Uh, we just need to do... You know, gay people are a minority. We just need to do what they want. I'm a gay person. This is what you know. This is not what I want. I mean, I, I just find it heartbreaking to read stories of people like Andrew. Uh, on the other hand, uh, many Christians behave this way about Christians who support the legal recognition of same-sex marriage. Uh, it's my view and the view of our church and the view of our denomination that the legal recognition of same-sex marriage will turn out to be bad for gay people. But that doesn't mean that if you don't agree that you're not a proper Christian or that you're not welcome in our church. Sadly, that's the story I hear from lots of Christians who are in favour of the legal recognition of same-sex marriage. They often feel like Christians or their churches treat them as if they're not a proper Christian. The problem is the assumption that what I feel is right and wrong that must be right and wrong. When actually, Jesus tells us that what we feel is right and wrong, that's not the definition of right and wrong. Look at Matthew 12, verses 3 to 6. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he, he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. So in his disagreement with these Pharisees, Jesus does not say, the Sabbath is less important than you think. No, Jesus says, I am more important than you think. Right? Jesus says, uh, they're interpreting the Sabbath wrong 
not because they're not taking the Sabbath seriously enough, but because they're not taking Jesus seriously enough. Or to put it another way, they're not interpreting the Sabbath wrong because they're taking the Sabbath too seriously. They're interpreting the Sabbath wrong because they're taking their, themselves and their own interpretation too seriously. Uh, something is greater than the temple is here, Jesus says. What is that something? Well, look at verse 8. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Jesus' favourite way of referring to himself. It allows him to tell you about himself without getting executed straight away. Because right? it was very controversial, very in people's faces. He's claiming that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees knew that God's law needed to be interpreted carefully. They knew there were situations where obedience looked different because of special circumstances. Jesus gives them two examples they would have been fully on board with. The temple is so important that keeping the Sabbath looks different in there. The religious work needs to be done even on the day off. Or King David was so important, such an important religious and political leader, that keeping the temple food laws looked different for him. Jesus doesn't say the Sabbath has changed or it's less important. He says circumstances have changed. Jesus is here now. And he's more important than David or the temple. Right? Notice he's not claiming to have more authority than God's law in itself. He's claiming to have more authority than the temple, the most important Jewish religious institution. I think the mistake we can make here is to think Jesus is claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath because the Sabbath is kind of less important than other parts of God's law. Because the Sabbath is kind of less authoritative than other parts of God's law. That's not his point. Jesus is saying he's Lord of the Sabbath because he's Lord of all of God's law. Jesus has the final say on the Sabbath because he has the final say on all of right and wrong. Uh, we see this back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. If you want to flick there quickly, you can. I'm going to read a few examples just to feel the how shocking, how forcefully, how clearly Jesus is claiming this. Matthew chapter uh, 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So God's law is supposed to accomplish something and Jesus has come to fulfill that, to make it do its job. Jesus came to use the law to accomplish its purpose. He's the Lord of the law. And so that means he's in charge of interpreting it. He has the final say. And so he gives a bunch of examples of, uh, well, you've heard the traditional interpretation of the law, but I tell you what the real interpretation is. Uh, so in the rest of Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 22, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, here's the traditional interpretation, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. 
Or another example, verses 27 to 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who lusts at a woman lust, looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 31. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33. Again you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. Here's the traditional interpretation. Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you made. But I tell you, verse 38, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, verse 43, 45, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, this is incredibly confronting. Jesus is saying you've got thousands of years of tradition that is rightly based on God revealing to you his law, his instructions for right and wrong. But you need to listen to me instead. I have the final authority about what that's all for and how to interpret all of that. Jesus says, you know the law, but I say this. I say when divorce is okay and when it's wrong. I say when sexuality is expressed rightly and when it's expressed wrongly. I say where the line is and when you've crossed it and what the punishment should be. Jesus is claiming that he is the Lord of right and wrong. He's claiming that he has the ultimate say about right and wrong. So I think I need to say two things about that. The first one is, for the Jews of Jesus' day, Sabbath was the big, hot-button, offensive issue when Jesus said that. Right, the Jews uh, you know, had a whole bunch of laws integrated into their politics, their culture, their religion, just as other nations had other laws integrated in those kinds of ways. Uh, and so, as you see in the world today, you compare different religions, there are things that are similar, there are things that are different. Uh, most cultures generally think murder is wrong. We just disagree on what the exceptions are. But in the time of Jesus, the Sabbath was one of the great distinctives of the Jews. I mean, other cultures did have days off, but the idea that you had to give your staff a day off every week, every seven days, that was pretty radical. The Jews were proud of that. And I think we've got to say, weren't they right? I mean, isn't that kind of what our, part of what our you know, workplace relations laws say? You've got to give people time off? This is kind of the origin of those kind of conditions and rules. They were right to be proud of this. We're going to make sure we take a day off every week. We're going to make sure everybody gets a day off every week. It doesn't matter if you have the worst job, the worst pay, the worst boss. It doesn't matter. It's a rule. You have to have a day off every week. Every Saturday, everybody takes off. That's a good rule. Uh, they thought that other cultures, other nations, didn't have this right. They thought that working your servants into the ground, never giving them time off, expecting to be at your beck and call all the time, no workplace conditions, they thought that was wrong. Don't you agree with them? The Jews had this right. 
They were rightfully proud. This is the way the rest of the world is now going and continuing to build on this. And so when Jesus came along and said, you've got the right foundation, but I'm in charge of interpreting this, they were offended. How dare you think? Anyone knows this better. We know this. We've got this covered. Well, just very briefly, uh, let me uh, say what I think the outcomes of that are in terms of thinking about the Sabbath law. I don't want to focus on that today. We've done that not too long ago. Uh, Let me remind you, of course, if you're new, you might want to talk to people after the service about this or chat to me. That's fine. Very briefly, uh, the Sabbath in the Old Testament, the fourth law of the Ten Commandments, has uh, both a ceremonial aspect and a moral aspect. It has a ceremonial aspect because it was a way for the Jews to remember God saving them out of slavery in Egypt, their particular uh, religious experience as a nation. And so having it on Saturday, uh, the laws about when that started, what time of the day it started and stopped, uh, what you had to do in the temple, all, this, you know, all those laws were specific to their religious experience as a nation. But there's also a moral aspect about uh, making sure people have time off and making sure we gather together to encourage each other in following Jesus. So now that Jesus has come, uh, we don't need to do the ceremonial things. We have uh, Jesus' ceremonies that he's given us. But we do need to do the moral things of uh, taking time off, making sure other people get time off, and making sure we gather to encourage each other to grow in doing good. So I don't think any of that is terribly controversial for us. The Sabbath was the hot-button issue for Jews of Jesus' day. What's the hot-button issue for us today? Is there an issue where our society is justifiably proud of thinking where, you know, this is an important thing and we are doing well with this and we want to keep doing well with this. We've made progress compared to some other cultures around us. Uh, but if you disagree with us about this, oh boy, we will be upset and judgmental. Well, I think equality is the obvious issue, isn't it? Right? Our society today uh, recognises that all people are created equal in the eyes of God. I mean, we deny that it's because we're created and we deny that God's involved, but we all agree that everybody's equal. And so we work hard at treating people equally. We work hard at making our laws treat people equally. Oh, but if you disagree with the popular ideas about how to treat people equally, well, Andrew's experience was equality mania is making people intolerant. Uh, I came across, I've been reading this book, and I'm not going to name the book because I don't want to criticise the guy because it could happen to anyone. But I came across this story in a book by a mainstream publisher. So I figured they'd done their editorial due diligence. Author I, 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 you know, I admire and I, I respect. A story of a, a student at a university uh, who was uh, reading a book about the history of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, uh, criticising the Ku Klux Klan to inspire him to continue to you know, work against racism. And another uh, person at the university uh, saw the front cover of this book, which had a picture of a member of the Ku Klux Klan with their big white robe and everything and their hat and and burning a cross. And so this uh, other person uh, complained to the university and uh, 
the man was uh, told he'd been found guilty of racial harassment and was censured and told he wasn't allowed to read that book at the university. And uh, so the way the story went was, well, it came out that uh, the book was critical of the KKK. He was reading it, as I said, to, to continue to fight against racism. And uh, it was a book that was in the university library. How could you tell someone they can't read a book from the university library at the university? And so there was uh, an outcry, there were lawyers involved, and uh, eventually it was struck from his record. And this was cited as an example of, you know, when we can get concerns about equality uh, kind of wrong. Well, I wanted to do my due diligence before I used this as an illustration, so I just, you know, went and Googled it and checked online and tried to find out about it. And uh, quickly found that the, you know, the basic facts were true. Uh, what struck me as interesting was there was, you know, consensus, uh, widespread consensus that the issue should have been handled better. It should have been handled better. What struck me as interesting was no one had any suggestions about what that handling it better would be. Now, I guess that could be because it was so obvious and I was just being slow, but I was motivated to, to do some more digging. Surely someone at some point should have said, what we should have done was this, or what we'd like you to do in the future was this. Or the person, I found an article written by the guy himself who'd been banned from reading the book. I expect him to say, why couldn't we just have done this? He never said that. And I thought that was just a bit weird, not the end of the world. I kept doing some digging. So I found some more details to the story. Uh, he wasn't just sitting you know, in the middle of a large patch of grass by himself. Uh, he was also working at the university to pay his way through uni and had been in a staff break room and he had pulled the book out with two black African-American co-workers and uh, put up his book showing them a picture of a KKK, you know, person burning a cross. And his two co-workers had said they really didn't want that kind of imagery showed to them on their break, in the break room. Would it be okay if he didn't do that? And he explained that his motivations were good because it was a book that was anti the KKK and so they should relax. They explained that they weren't criticising him or accusing him of being racist, they just wanted to be able to relax on their breaks and looking at pictures of the KKK stop them from being able to do that. He said they needed to get over it. Uh, he was called for a meeting with... Uh, sorry, they complained to the university. Uh, he was called to a meeting with someone from the university who tried to explain again and suggested that he could still read the book. He could still read the book on his break. He could still read the book on his break in the break room, but could he move to the other side of the break room? rather than insisting on showing the cover to African-American colleagues when they asked him not to. And he said no. He could not do that. He was going to stand up for his rights. Well, when I read that version of the story, I have to say I saw it differently. Of course, it's entirely possible it's entirely possible that his recent ancestors were executed for possessing banned books. Not very likely, but it's possible. So I don't want to be insensitive to him and his needs, 
But there's a difference between being asked to conceal the cover of a book or sit somewhere else or just move down there. There's a difference between that and banning a book. Like, that's actually quite different things, isn't it? And in all of that, I couldn't find anyone suggesting how it could have been dealt with differently. Uh, I ended up just Googling how to deal with racism constructively. And I found this website uh, with that had involved lots of consultation. Lots of good things about this, right? Lots of good things about this. Lots of consultation with people. Uh, lots of information and suggestions. Lots of examples of people experiencing kind of everyday racism and trying to respond to it. Right, so lots of useful things and all that. But I, I have to say I was surprised by one thing about this website. I ended up not reading the whole thing, so maybe the last 10% completely remedied this, but I suspect not. In all the scenarios they're described, where uh, people are witnessing racism that's not directed to them, there were lots of examples of that. Your sister says something, your brother says something, your co-workers does something, your parents do something, your child, you know, all these different scenarios, which, which is really useful there were only two examples where it was suggested you could ask the person where they were coming from or you could tell, explain it to them. There was only one group of people that they suggested, if they say something racist, ask them why they think that's okay. Only one group of people. Anyone want to guess who it was? Parents. Parents are worthy of that respect. No one else is worthy of that respect. There's only one group of people they suggested you actually explain to them why you're offended. I mean, generally it was state that you're offended. Uh, tell them that you believe in the equality of all people. Because, you know, no one else believes that and it'll clarify everything. No, no. There's only one group where they said actually explain to them what your specific problem is and how you think this works. That was children. Nobody else requires that level of information. And I just thought, well, my two cents, I think that would be a better thing to deal with these issues. Ask people what they actually think and explain what you actually think. Am I, now, just to be really clear, going back to my story of the, uh, the person who was displaying the KKK book cover to their African-American colleagues, I'm not at all critical of the African-Americans who were offended about that, told the person they were offended, and then complained. That's, that's fair enough. I don't know what they've been through. I don't know what... Uh, that triggers for them to see that. So fair enough, no problem. I don't have a particular problem with the guy who would not put the book down. I find it harder to imagine what his problem was, but I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. What I'm a bit concerned about uh, is the university, the university staff who are employed to deal with these kind of problems, uh, who were described, certainly in the information I found, as not dealing with it in, a, in an objective, balanced way. I mean, is it too much to ask? Ask the person why they think that's okay. Explain to the person why you think it's not... Is that too much to ask? Like, it's too much to ask for the person who's, you know, currently being subject to mistreatment, right? But for the people who are on the sidelines and just watching and concerned if they can help, Surely a way to help is to ask 
why do you think that? And explain if you think differently. So I think this is the big practical I want us to take away from today. Right, when we have perhaps a dispute with a co-worker or even more difficultly, a boss, about how to, you know, perhaps do something in an ethical way in the workplace, right, that can be a really awkward conversation. But just actually saying, this is potentially an awkward conversation, but can we actually have it? <laughs> like, like, I genuinely want to know why you think this is okay or why you think this is necessary or, or whatever the, the question is. I, yeah, can you please explain? I genuinely want to know. Is it okay for, you to ex for me to explain to you why I think I see it differently? A and actually explain. Don't just say, well, everyone who believes in equality agrees with me. That doesn't explain anything, apart from the fact that you didn't understand their explanation. Uh, of course, the... Uh, whole new area for our society in this topic is the internet. And uh, if people struggle to do this in real life face-to-face, -face, which we do, it's not surprising there seems to be a dearth of it online. Uh, we need wisdom for what to do with that. But what I do want to encourage you is to be a person who speaks up. Yeah? So when you're at a, a social event or you're just chatting with colleagues around the water cooler, and, you know, someone makes uh, an, a joke that you consider to be inappropriate or offensive or derogatory, whatever. Uh, don't let it go. Right? Say something. And, and say something like, do you mind me asking why you think that's funny? Like, like not, not arrogantly, but genuinely. Do, do you mind me asking, why, why do you think that's funny? And they can say, why wouldn't it be? And you can explain, well, it sounds to me like you're saying all people in this category are less human than the rest of us, or whatever it sounds like. That, that's what it sounds like to me. But that may not be what you mean, so can you explain? And then when they explain, you might need to explain some more. And it might be that neither of you change your opinions immediately But hopefully you'll have a chance to share that you realise that you are not the Lord of right and wrong. And the reason you know you are not the Lord of right and wrong is because you know the person who is. The Bible says that one day Jesus will return to earth and he will exercise divine power to raise to life everyone who's ever lived and he will exercise divine knowledge. God knows everything and so... Jesus will use that as God the Son to judge everyone, to judge us. I don't know exactly how that's going to work, but let's imagine it as a very long series of very short court cases. There'll be a man from first century Rome in the dock. An angel will present, briefly present all the evidence that this man did not follow Jesus' way but followed his own selfish, arrogant way. And the man will cry out, how was I supposed to know to follow Jesus when his followers were so bad? I mean, in my time, Christians believed that slaves and free men were equal with everyone else. And even crazier, they believed men and women are equal. I can't be blamed for not going along with that. 
I wonder how sorry you'll feel for that guy. The man's led away, and then a woman from the 20th century is brought into the dock. An angel presents all the evidence that this woman did not follow Jesus' way. True, right, and wrong. But the woman cries out, How was I supposed to know to follow you when your followers were so bad? In my time, Christians believed that all people were equal despite their gender differences when it's obvious that all people are equal because gender differences don't exist. Well, of course, all the feminists who have moved on from that won't have very much sympathy for her. I mean, society's beliefs about equality have evolved over time. They keep changing. But everyone seems to assume... Well, what everyone always assumes, we've finally got it right and now things will stop and we'll just keep going like this for the rest of history. That seems so unlikely. Imagine yourself facing the judgment of Jesus. Imagine crying out, how could I be expected to follow Jesus when his followers opposed same-sex marriage? And then you notice your great-grandchildren hiding their faces in embarrassment because their generation saw the unintended consequences of that policy and figured out that wasn't the right way to treat gay people equally. I don't know if that's going to happen any more than anyone else can predict. But we're all just predicting. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know who is going to turn out to be right. That'll be Jesus. How foolish would it be not to trust Jesus because of the changing popularity of different parts of his teaching. We might have trouble understanding what Jesus says to do in a particular situation, but that's a problem with us. Jesus will turn out to be right. Jesus is Lord of right and wrong, and that includes him being Lord of equality. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to uh, see people the way you see people, as equals. Uh, Help us to see that your law, right and wrong, is about doing good. It's about being kind to people. And so help us not to try and use it for other things. Uh, Particularly... Please help us to trust Jesus, that he is Lord, that he is Lord of right and wrong, that he is Lord of the things that we're sensitive about, including equality. And so uh, please help us not to uh, presume that we're right, but to always be uh, willing to listen to others and to explain ourselves knowing that in the right, in the end, Jesus will be right. Amen.